is The Business of Being Human. I'm Christine Hildebrand. And I'm Wendy Horn Brower of Intune Collective. We help leaders like you reinvent how you lead and operate, connecting you and your companies to greater possibility and performance. From joy to awareness to consciousness and capacity building, we know that business as usual isn't business at all. Welcome, everybody, to the business of being human. I'm Christine Hildebrand, and so excited to bring you this next episode with our special guest, Nikki Lanier, is here from Harper Slade. Welcome, Nikki. Hey there, Christine. I'm happy to be here. Very excited. I really don't know where to start when I am welcoming you and introducing you, and I had the distinct honor of introducing you to the HR West um, audience um, on the, in the Oakland, California conference last month. And still, I'm here welcoming you. And I am, you know, honored again and also overwhelmed at your background and all that you have uh, done with your life and the dedication of service. We are here today to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Nikki has had decades of immersion, not only as a Black woman in America, but she has had her life's mission and purpose basically given to her at birth. She grew up in a powerfully affirming family with parents who believed in education and the equality and equity that was bestowed upon our founding fathers and fathers in the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for all not some. Her parents have had their own history of civil rights engagement and fighting for equity in their own lives. And Nikki had the fortune of growing up around powerfully affirming parents. So Nikki has continued her life's work as founder of Harper Slade, a racial equity advisory firm. Nikki works with companies and leaders as a racial equity strategist She's an attorney. She has been a CHRO three times over with 25 years in human resources. She's the former senior vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis and achieved with achievements in labor, employment law, state government. And she currently lives in Louisville, Kentucky. So there is so much in your background and richness. So if you are a CEO, a CHRO, a chief people officer, a chief strategy officer, this episode is for you and you are going to want to get a cup of coffee, a glass of wine and pull up a chair because this is about to get real. And we are <laughs> so excited to have you, Nikki. And I want to stop there and I'm going to have you describe your three areas of racial equity that you are focusing on with your work at Harper Slade and just this next chapter of your work in general. Well, Christine, thank you for that overview and the context for this work and our, our discussion over the next few minutes. I am working, you know, I've decided to leave my sort of traditional, traditional in my view, employment, my experience employment and move into Harper Slade because I wanted to spend whatever breath I have left to draw for whatever time I've got left to draw it, really focusing in three core areas to help advance racial equity 
across our country through work. And so the first one is like around how do we think about caring for the black community? So this is the restorative aspect, remedial aspect that's that's really a part of what uh how do we write with a capital R, write these past wrongs that have been just so emblematic of the black experience in our country throughout the entirety of black people's history here? And then how do we reshape new norms and new standards and new perceptions and understanding of mattering? So in what context do black people matter now versus black people mattering in the future? There's a lot that I've got to illuminate on that message. The second one is how do we transform workplaces? Now, this is this is work, Christine, that I've been involved in really my entire life as a, as a working professional. So even when I was practicing labor and employment law, and most certainly as a human resources practitioner and chief human resources officer, I've always kind of been about the, the, the business of transforming how work works. That is resetting norms in the workplace that help us bring our best selves to work and really be thoughtful about what we are giving to work and what we are expecting back from it being mindful of when and where it depletes versus when and where it restores. But certainly this work is is particularly nuanced and fairly idiosyncratic when it comes to the workplace. How do we transform the workplace around theories, principles, ideals associated with DEI? Understanding that doing so is incredibly counterculture, super counterculture, um, and yet working against headwinds, nonetheless, to really make these um, these principles matter. And the third is, of course, because of my steeping and my work with the Federal Reserve, our nation's economy. So we are at a very different point in our life as, as people traversing through the planet at this point. This All of us that are, that are traversing through the planet now, we have inherited a very different, urgent issue, and that is the demography change, the, the, the browning of the country, the browning of the world, really. And what does that mean from an economic standpoint if we continue to marginalize and mute and stunt the, the very talent that, we are, that we'll be increasingly relying on um, mm-hmm. in the years to come? Yeah, thank you for that. And, and that powerful, powerful missions independently, but the fact that you're combining writing um, Black injustice and transforming workplace dynamics and the mission and connecting racial equity to the economic power that we are as as a nation and to not marginalize people of color so that we can all flourish in this economy is such a powerful mission in and of itself. But you're doing all three. And I want to, we're going to dive into some things around all details around all three of those things. But before we do that, I want to lay some foundation around in tune and who I am as a white woman in this conversation. First of all, I'm incredibly humbled. I am here to learn. I am here as an advocate. I'm here as an ally. And um, I grew up in the inner city in San Francisco and have cultural exposure. My background is Spanish, even though I've experienced in the United States the privilege of being a white female. I believe um, that this is the time of divine feminine 
And that feminine balancing of our world is so important. And that means all feminine voices, regardless of skin color, we hold something collective. So I'm here with you, Nikki, today in this conversation as a woman as well, and as a woman who believes in your journey and wants to learn and understand that. And so thank you for being here to um, help us learn and, and feel and embody the experiences that we all need to understand um, as human beings in this time. The other thing I wanted to mention is that at Intune and Collective, we work with organizations to reposition work that emphasizes the human being, and that means people of color as well. So a lot of our work is around DEIB, and we see DEIB, diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging work as fundamental human development work in this time. We also see it as fundamental strategic work that major leaders, all leaders, need to get their heads around, including it in the the baseline directive, just as important as what product, what position, what marketplace are we going after? This is just as critical to um, uh, the conversations that need to be happening inside of companies. And we're also, as well as you, Nikki, and we're partnering to bring that more to light for leaders and helping them because it is a journey and we're going to dive into that. But before we do, the other foundation setting I wanted to lay is what do we mean by racial equity and what do we mean by inclusion? And I we really want to hear your description, Sticky, because the way you lay it out is so easy to understand and digest. And so I want to give our listeners the benefit of the definition of the terms we're going to be referencing in this discussion. Yeah, thanks, Christine. I think this is so fundamentally important. Oftentimes we find inside of organizations, they spend so much time beleaguered under the weight of how best to define diversity. How can we approach this work in a way that makes everyone feel comfortable, makes everyone feel included, and makes uh, make sure that, that, that there's no dissension, if you will, among the ranks, within the ranks. And so for Harper Slade, for my company, we, we define these concepts fairly simply. Diversity is just um, the introduction of difference. Now, it's hard work if you just stop at diversity because you have to fir- you have to first understand different from what. So every organization, every entity, every um, institution, every family, at, at every level of our navigating of life, there is a norm standard, right? And mm-hmm. so we have to understand that there is, and in this workplace, there is a norm standard and someone is defining it. So whatever that is, folks that are coming into the workplace that are different from that is how we think about diversity. Okay. That's one thing. That's how diversity. Inclusion is how people feel about work and how work feels about them. Yeah. That of course begs the question, how do you know? how people feel about work. So it's a little bit tighter than the typical employee engagement surveys. So it's not, it's not just about how do you feel about the stuff and things of work and the benefits and the pay and the, you know, the assignments that you get to work on, but just as a matter of kind of intrinsic value, does work either affirm more days or, or detract from more days, my sense of purpose, who I am fundamentally at my core does it see me? Does it 
hear me? Does it value me more often than not? Do I felt, do I feel as though this is a place that is, that I can find emotional respite, safety, and security and, uh, you know, vice versa. So that's the, how does work feel about me? How do I feel about it? And then racial equity is super narrowly defined with Harper Slade as proportional fairness that takes into account the cultural and lived experience of people of color as distinct from all other people and works to remedy the same. So what we call out is the proportional fairness piece and mm -hmm. the remedial piece. Cause oftentimes I think that's missed when we talk about equity, especially if we talk about equity at work broadly, I, we mm -hmm. talk about racial equity because that's where the macroeconomic imperative lies. Pay equity studies and gender equity and equity in general are differently defined. But for our company, that's how we define racial equity. Nikki, that gives great foundations to the description. And I love Harper Slade's definition of racial equity. It really is a lot more descriptive. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean about proportional fairness? And what is what is that? And how is that relating to this equity understanding that we need to to really grasp a little deeper than I think we do? Uh, yeah. So those of us, the, the easiest way to think about it is um, considering what each person or a group of people might need mm -hmm. as distinguished from others. It rejects the uh, proportional fairness kind of rejects the tendency to move towards sameness, familiarity, predictability, mm -hmm. standard HR folks of which I am one tend to get super frustrated and concerned when I talk about proportional fairness because it's easier usually in work environments. Everybody gets the same thing. Everybody does the same. Everybody's everything is the same, which never gets to equity. Equity by definition means you get what you need, you get what you need, you, you get what you need. One of the easiest ways to think about it is like with parenting. Most of us uh, either are parents or have been parented. And so we, and, and if we have siblings, we kind of know how this thing works, right? So, you parent, you adjust your style for what that particular child or what this group of kids might need, depending on where they have come from, depending on what has happened in their lives, depending on the, the choices that have been made or choices that have been made for them. Um, so it's no different, really, the thinking around that. It just, it feels a little antithetical to ideas around fairness, which ideas around fairness. It's not antithetical to fairness, but it is antithetical to how we think about fairness. Yeah. Um, and so it's just about really understanding that there are very different realities around how people who come into the workplace with a narrative that is assigned to them, meaning all of us have narratives that are given to us, that are unbeknownst to us, that are not ours that we have crafted whether you're black female, white female, Hispanic, white male, LGBTQ, whomever, you're, you're coming into the work with a narrative on top of you. The extent to which that narrative is calcified and ringing with deficit overtones will very much depend on who's the standard setter at the workplace. Remember, we went back to that conversation. Like who who right. sets the norm of what is right and what is good and what is tolerated in this workplace? What culture 
what norms do that. And so the deviations mm -hmm. from that and the extent to which those norm setters are also this layer of management, also this layer of management, also this layer of management, make it more difficult for people who are coming into the work with these assigned external narratives to actually break through that and demonstrate this is the who of me, not that right. narrative that you've given right. to me or that society has given to me, but this is in fact the who of me. Is that permitted uh, an opportunity to live and flourish and thrive here? So yeah, that's a, uh, anyway, that's, that's how I'd res respond to proportional fairness. Thinking about that narrative. Well, you, are, you have a course coming up called The Garden, and I have never heard a metaphor so well articulated as how you describe the garden in terms of this proportional fairness idea and racial equity, and also providing the, the right environments, which is the work of Harper Slade, the right environments for multiple different people to thrive based on their unique set of needs. Right. And so if we're affected by our environments, whether that be our home life or our work life, they inadvertently set potentially limitations on our capacity to be who we are and what we could be ultimately be and ultimately contribute. I'd like you to talk to us about the garden and the yeah. metaphor of the garden. And if we can all think as leaders about our internal company microcosms as gardens of which we all have the responsibility for tending and nurturing, I'd love for you to describe the garden to help our listeners understand racial equity and proportional fairness a little bit deeper. Perfect. Yes. Okay. So the garden is a, an offering that is coming to market uh, this quarter. It's an online course, seven modules that immerse the course participant into the world of a garden. And it helps you dissect, pace and sequence the way that we think about DEI work, right? So that's super important to my work. I would argue super important to the work and that is the pacing, sequencing and dissection of the D work, the E work and the I work. So the garden of course is a metaphor. And the flowers in the garden in our training represent the people in the workplace. And each of these flowers has their own beauty and their own background and their own story and their own richness. Some came to the garden from other gardens. Some came to the gardens as seeds. Some started as bulbs. But nonetheless, they all find themselves in this wonderful, beautiful garden at the same time. The soil in the training represents the work environment that has to be tilled and amended and cultivated and fertilized so that the entirety of the garden can flourish. The gardener is the racial equity kind of architect, the manager, supervisor, whoever might be responsible for being a steward over the well-being of that garden as a whole. Oftentimes, in the context of proportional fairness or understanding race and equity or even diversity and inclusion for that matter, we tend to have gardeners in work that are super great, experienced with marigolds, as an example. They came from an environment where marigolds were grown, marigolds were nurtured, they themselves are a marigold, 
and they know the flower very well. They know what the flower was, how much sunlight, they know how much it needs to be fertilized, where in the garden it needs to be planted, and how the soil around it needs to be cultivated to assure its growth. And then we asked our gardener one day to take care of daisies and tulips. And so the tendency is to take those daisies and tulips and stick them in the marigold marigold soil, expecting the same kind of bounty, the same kind of flourish. And when they're not, then we assign something to be wrong with those daisies and tulips. Like maybe they need a mentor or they put them on a performance review plan (laughs) because they're just not flourishing in the way like we're giving them all of the we're watering it. We're giving it, you know, sunlight. What is the problem? Without realizing that there's certain species of flowers, depending on where they came from, what they're kind of, I think this is the right word, heterogeneology, heterogeneous, I don't know, botanical background is. So there's certain species of flowers that just will never thrive in certain kinds of soil, right? Um, And so the gardener's responsibility is understanding in which instances do certain flowers need more sunlight, certain flowers need more fertilization, certain need more water. And if I have an entire garden where there are a group of flowers that have never really been permitted the opportunity to flourish in their best environment, then that's where racial equity, proportional fairness says, I'm going to focus on the tulips for the next five to 10 years. Not Mm -hmm. at the expense of the marigolds and daisies, but they're doing okay. These never have been okay. This is they're trying to thrive and survive in an environment that was never cultivated with their contemplated with their cultivation in mind. And so now, Mm -hmm. not only do I want to pay attention to what's happening to them now, I want to make sure that what has happened, what gains have been lost because they've not been permitted to or not been encouraged to, or we've just not paid attention to the difference in how they become really flourishing flowers. Mm-hmm. We want to, we have to make up for that because if we don't, the entirety of this plant bed, this garden will suffer. Right. So, and, um, and that's kind of how we think about the garden training. I love that metaphor because there's so much that we can see as leaders, our role as the gardener. And when we evaluate how we've been tending to the garden in the past versus what is required now in this time, in this point of where work and companies and the evolution of commerce is, what would you say to the CEO or the leader of an organization right now about their role and, and importance as the gardener? Like, what do they need to be doing? Because I think that they think that their garden assistant is taking care of the garden, (laughs) right? right? And we, you and I learned from HR West that, and and also what we're seeing in our work is that the conversation around DNI is not relegated to the learning development head or the HR head this is a conversation for the C-level team to be having. So using the metaphor of the garden, like everyone has to take responsibility on the C-team to be the gardeners. And it's not just the functional role of HR to be the gardener for the people. What would your invitation, I would say, be to CEOs around inserting themselves into this conversation right now and really taking the ownership over the garden, let's say? Well, I think it's important for CEOs 
and those who advise CEOs to understand that the conversation around DEI must be elevated, yeah. not, not just elevated in to the person that you're talking to, but elevated in maturity and sophistication levels. And so we tend to assign the work to the HR team, believing this work to only matter in an HR construct. So in furtherance of already existing HR priorities and strategies. And while on some level that may be true, because DEI, again, operates inside of a construct that is not intended to or understanding of what it is, right? It's so counterculture. It is so counterintuitive. In some ways, dare I say it, counter-American, right? So this is this is this is a part of the American ideal, but not a part of the American behavior. Never has been. So this idea of including difference and proportional fairness with remedial aspects to it, forget it. Right. So I think CEOs understanding that what I'm asking this organization to do is no different than going to the moon. It's it's really is no different than that. So if that's this, if that's this, the standard that you're going to set, you've got to align corporate resources against that vision, against that goal. You've got to align corporate capability against that vision and goal. You've got to align purpose and um, intention and money and and attention. Did I already say that? Intention, intention and attention right. against that goal, much like you would if you were setting any other big, hairy, audacious goal. Right. Um, that is that HR has to align to and your sales group has to align to and your uh, your marketing team has to align to and your operations team has to align to. So thinking about it in that way. Now, why am I saying that we have to think about it in that way is because of the urgency of demography, because we collectively as a country have a responsibility to assure the overall well-being of our country continues to flourish. I would argue that I would hope that many would agree with me in that. And so part of what we do when we go to work is contribute to the economy. It's part of why we do what we do, not just to grow our own coffers, but also to contribute to the larger society as a whole. Well, as we know that the browning of the country is happening very quickly in 23 short years, minorities, specifically black people and Hispanic people, will make up the majority in the working class. We must also make up the majority at least in the middle class. That's the 60 to $120,000 income earner. Those jobs that earning income strata happens in the workplace and the largest impediment to black and brown upward mobility and upward vitality, potency, activation, releasing the fullness of our discretionary effort, having us feel safe and secure at work is racism and the way that it shows up at work. So that's how I want to have employers think about, CEOs think about how to sit this work inside of an organization, how to contextualize the importance of this work, um, and how to think about, much like you would any other strategic imperative, really elevating the way we approach this work as not just a human capital methodology transformational effort, but an economic vitality, viability transformational effort. Well, we've said before that you're if you're not taking on DEI initiatives and looking at your DEI strategy 
that uh, you're basically planning your obsolescence. And the the trends of the Browning of America, as you pointed out, the demography change, and also the ideal that we are losing so much productivity in our economy. So there's there's all these macro reasons to to not only like be, play your role in driving mm-hmm. economic the economic engine of the United States, but also mm-hmm. to be relevant as an employer. We're already seeing the great reevaluation and the great resignation in terms of employees really not choosing to go to work based on some of the cultures that are that are currently available and out there right now. So how do we as as leaders and organizations really prioritize this along with everything else? We we run into a lot of C-level leaders that are overwhelmed by this because it is such a monumental undertaking sometimes for yeah. them or that's the way the perception is of it but as you broke it down that this becomes a decision point at the leader it fundamentally is the ceo's decision of making it important and how it actually gets integrated into operations into marketing into human resources into the culture so that you're not only creating the the environments for all flowers in the garden to thrive Yep. But you're creating a garden where flowers will want to live. There, Christine, that's exactly, that's it. Flowers will want to live. And let me just talk about that just for a second, because this is what, this is so important. Employers all over the planet covet doggedly employee engagement, right? We talk about that yeah. all the time, especially us HR types. Yeah. So this wanting to, concept, how it goes back to the inclusion piece, how I feel about work and how I feel work feels about me, right? So all of that is important, not just unto itself, because when, when you have, when you have people who are interested in work, feel connected to the workplace, feel safe and secure at work in the who of them, who I am is as celebrated as what I do then that activates an unleashing of discretionary effort that then begets more credibility, uh, creativity and innovation that then leads to a more competitive organization. And that's what every CEO wants, competitive organization, right? The right. pathway on the engagement continuum that we talk about at Harper Slade starts with how am I connected to work and interested in the workplace? Mm-hmm. Safe and secure, right? Discretionary effort. So that's that safety and security piece oftentimes that we get hung up because that's where we don't, we don't pay attention to the fact that I've been in, I've been flailing around in this garden for years and years and years. And no one has paid attention to the fact that I just, you're giving me water when I need water with lemon, right? Or I need um, less sunlight, not more. And I, I can't work in an environment where I'm you know, this close in proximity to a another species of flower. I need to be around a different species of flower. So there's just mm-hmm. not paying attention to what is happening with each one of these flowers culturally, like this grouping right. of flowers, there's things that have happened. So anyway, this, this feeling about work and wanting to be at work, what it activates, I mean, I can't even tell you, 
the horror stories that I've had in my own experience as a black woman navigating work. But what I know to be true about my own creativity and innovation that I never felt comfortable to unleash in a work environment because it just, I was so busy trying to survive and trying to stave off and recover from the insults and the bias and the inequity and the messages around my unimportance that were just kept coming. It's hard to, it's hard to be your best in environments like that. Yeah. And, and Nikki, um, I've been so honored to spend time with you and, and it's just so clear the talent you have and the heart you have and the contribution that you can make. And I can't even imagine that you'd have to wade through all of that stuff and even before you can even get to contribution in terms of optimizing your value in an organization. So I just wanted to recognize that that it, it just seems so crazy. And I, and, and I have definitely felt it as being female in terms of holding back or not expressing my voice or not leaning in when I knew that I had um, value to add. So but I know that your situation and, and some of the stories I want to I want to hear some of those things. But I have a question for you. What's happening right now is the workforce is choosing to go to places that o- only offer remote work. And if you don't offer offer remote work, they don't want to work for you. It's mm-hmm. it's like becoming like if if you if you're not offering that remote opportunity, there you're losing out on talent, right? Do you think it's also going to get to the place of the same thing when when black and brown talent becomes um, the predominant in the workforce that unless there is a culture or a garden that is accepting of all flowers and that is going to nurture all flowers, they just won't go there for work. Do you think that that's also going to happen? Yeah. In fact, I I hope it happens. Um, that's part of, excuse me, what I advise some of my mentees, um, and folks that I coach, you know, I, I, listen, I think about my own time, talent, energy, intellect as my precious currency and it is a gift. And when I choose to gift it to employment settings or to other engagements, um, I'm hoping and expecting that they are wise stewards over this gift. Uh, and but it's my responsibility to constantly check for that. And shame on me if I keep gifting it in environments where it's spoiling, where it's being desecrated or marginalized or not appreciated. So I take my gift back and I take it, give it to another organization, right? And I know I'm not saying that out of arrogance. I'm just saying that out of you know the clock is ticking. We all we only have so much time on this side of the dirt, right? So I just really <laughs> want to be very careful about how and when I use this time. And so yes. when people, I've had people call and say, listen, I, I've been trying for years to get my employer to understand diversity and they don't want to do it. They don't even want to do a policy. They don't want to do training. I have not gotten promoted. Everybody else around me is getting promoted. What should I do? I always say leave. Always. Like there's nothing to discuss. Leave. Right. So, and that's not, right. that's not to say that you can't learn, like you should always be open to feedback. Definitely learn something about what, what is there something that you're doing that you could be doing better Accounting for all of that, mm-hmm. in the end, if it's a matter of principle, if if you are a black, brown woman, someone someone for whom in this environment, the narrative that's assigned to you matters a lot and not so good of a way in this environment, it's not your job to stay there and fight it out 
that's not what work is intended to do. It's not what work is intended right. to be. Right. And yet, I mean, for many, most of us, it's become that, but that it's never, it was intended for that, at least the way I define my work. So anyway, I think that you're, I think, so, yes, I think, yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, that, that ultimately, in addition to the demography changes, but also creating the right environment so that you have talent, you have talent that actually wants to come and contribute, right? And right. creating those nurturing environments now. It's 2023 almost. And what we're going to be seeing is that the browning of America by 2045, but I think I've even heard earlier projections than that in terms of black and brown people being the predominant in the workforce. So we have work to do for sure. And now is the time to, to make the transformation in order to create those environments that are happening. In addition to the demography changes, there's also an economic reason for this. And I want to, I want to help leaders understand some of the economic impact mm -hmm. of racial inequity that has, that has hurt us from a national standpoint in our, in our, in our national GNP. So I'd like you to share a little bit about that from an economic standpoint, because that I think is a huge story around the need to engage in this, to not only see yourself as a leader and as a, a leader of a company that's creating impact and generating vitality for not only your employees, but for consumers, um, that, that, our contribution here or our lack of contribution and effort and energy is actually costing all of us. And I, I really like yep. you to, to share a little bit about um, the connection between inequity and the four loan loss in, in, in GNP. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's significant. So I I'd invite your, your, your viewers or your listeners to uh, check out recent studies promulgated by the federal reserve banks, specifically of San Francisco, Minneapolis, mm -hmm. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, where I used to work, um, and the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. San Francisco last year, it might have been two years ago, no, it was last year, uh, promulgated a study that focused on the cost of inequity. And what they found was over the last 20 years, inequity has cost this country, racial inequity has cost this country $16 trillion in lost GDP. And that is wildly significant. The study also yeah. found that um, if for some reason we were able to eradicate and close racial equity, now this is structural, right? So this isn't the kind of pedestrian who gets called the N-word, uh, like the behavior part of it. This is this inequity that is built into structures around home ownership, around the workforce, around um, our financial Education services, system, education, all of that. So the structures around inequity and what is produced or isn't produced from those because of inequity, that's mm -hmm. the $16 price tag over 20 years. If we were able to close those gaps over the next five years, then we'd realize another $5 trillion in uh, GDP. So these are not small numbers. Um, they have okay. fiscal and monetary policy implications. They, there are consequences for the entirety of our country. And those numbers are only going to get bigger as the demography increases yeah. for, yes. for black and brown. So that's where the urgency is. I have a, the best quote I've heard on this is a Congressman John Yarmouth. He's here in Kentucky, a United States Congressman. And he has said on so many occasions, it is in white America's interest that black and brown America thrive. And he's yeah. absolutely right. 
Absolutely. And so um, we all have job to do here because if we contribute, we all stand to gain on that yeah. one. And I, I believe that not to mention um, GMP, but also what it does to our health system, our justice system, and everything mm-hmm. else, our education system, when we open up the infrastructures into creating new pathways for black and brown people to thrive. Um, I wanted to talk about, Nikki, what you have noticed inside of companies that are getting it right. What are some of the components that help leaders implement D&IB effectively? What Mm -hmm. are some of the outcomes you're seeing that are benefits to this? And what are some of the pitfalls, frankly, that they need to be aware of as uh, an organization takes on creating uh, DNIB, a, a welcoming garden of DNIB um, for all for all flowers to flourish. All flowers to flourish. Yeah, this is the metaphor that we're, we're going to run with this metaphor for like a long time. It's so um, it's so easy and <laughs> to understand, and nice, yeah, to imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think a couple of things I'd, I'd say are common with the organizations that I think that are doing extraordinarily well in this space. One, and in no particular order, one is leader visibility and vulnerability. So, you know, the extent to which you've got senior leaders, somebody in the C-suite that's talking about their own personal journey and aha and awakening and understanding that, whoops, maybe my lived experience isn't the lived experience. The fact that I've assumed that my standard is the standard is now not only compromising how we have built an environment in our workplace that is a little bit more um, inflexible than I was hoping for, but it presumes um, a required kind of isolation and thwarts our innovation. So uh, I'd love to see employers, companies with leaders that are that visible and vulnerable in this space. The second thing I think uh, that's common with organizations that are doing well is that they are compartmentalizing, pacing and sequencing the D work from the E work from the I work, and and you all have the B work, and realizing that they they require their own rigor, their own discipline. I mean, it's just, it's very different kind of constructs to think about, especially if if you don't have much by way of representation in your company, of minorities, then why are you why are you even talking about racial equity? What who for what? You you haven't even like gotten to the point where you can uh, really understand diversity in practice, which is kind of like the fundamental rung. Difference needs to be invited in, welcomed in, and then inclusion right next to that, so that when it comes here, it feels welcome here. It feels like this is a place where it can be activated. It feels like this is a place where it could be safe, so that the discretionary effort and the blah 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 can be unleashed. So those organizations that really understand how to pay sequence and compartmentalize that work is super, super important. And then those that, if you are going to embark on racial equity work, that you do so in a way that you're recognizing, I don't have to, as white male as an example, I don't have to absorb any guilt or feelings of fault or anger about any of this because I didn't inherit, I didn't create it. I inherited it. Right. So sometimes yeah. when we go out and we're, we're touting this DIEB drum, we do it in a way that makes white males feel like, Oh God, here they come. Like, this is not about me. This is about a whole bunch of people that are angry about something <coughs> or they want me to feel guilty about something that I didn't do. And now those, and in some ways they're kind of right. Cause sometimes we do, we come out and we're doing all that. Everybody's mad. Everybody's pissed off and everybody's like, 
wielding a bunch of emotion around it. Now it is emotional work. It is because you're talking about the heart, someone's heart, someone's fundamental belief about who gets to matter without context and who gets to matter with context. So it's hurtful, especially when you're sitting in a seat like mine or yours, Mm -hmm. but the work itself and conveying it doesn't have to be laced with all of the kind of emotion, emotional trappings around it. So anyway, so I've seen I've seen organizations that 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 do well really do understand that uh, we're we're going to take the song, we're going to set it in the right context, we're going to set strategy, align all of our resources, visioning, uh, people capabilities, strategy against this very um, tightly defined, paced and sequence goal. I would love to see, actually, I have not seen this yet, but I'd love to see people a- approach diversity, equity, inclusion almost in buckets. Like, what is your most marginalized group in your workforce today? Is it Hispanic employees? Then you need a, like a his- Hispanic DIEB program, not policy, program, right? And then do that for just like five years. Not again to the exclusion of black and Asian and all the other minorities or LGBTQ or women, but because this is the group that is most acutely impacted by the fact that we've not paid any attention to any of this. So we're going to start there. We're going to learn everything we need to know about the culture and the lived experience here and what makes sense in terms of how to root them into this garden, um, how they feel about work, how work feels about them, all of that, all of those things. We're going to just do that for five years. So we're going to take those learnings to our next marginalized group. And that's going to be the five-year group until our next, until our next. That's super bold work, in my opinion. But right. it's, it is a way to accelerate, which I'm also super interested in, um, momentum and real, real change in this space. So um, I love when you're f- reframing the the courageous step forward for for white men into the work, right? And and the letting go of the past and really having the vision and the courage to look at what we can create going forward and stepping into it with that courage. I also like what you're saying about five years and that this is a program. I think so many companies think of D&IB as like, okay, what can you do for me with four workshops? We get, yeah. we get questions like that all the time and that, and that um, the people who are calling us are actually, we need to have a conversation with the, the key leaders in the organization and, and work with them in terms of what their vision is for the program and what they're seeing inside of their own demographic makeup and what are the issues that are surfing and what are the symptomatic things that are surfacing and address that in an ongoing program. It's so I really appreciate you bringing that up in terms of the length of time, because it is something that is not just a quick fix or a box to check as we so often run into many people that think that it still is in learning and development um, although yeah. it's important learning and development, it's not existing solely in that space. Um, how would you address the the mindset of the leaders and and in terms of them being ready? And number two, what is what are the what are the budgetary considerations do they need to have from a funding standpoint? Because we often are trying to look at funding this out of HR budgets, which really is not something that 
where it belongs when you think of it as a strategic initiative? Yeah. So mm, if, if we can get our CEOs, our senior leaders to contextualize this work as, as a strategic priority of the company. So yeah. we've got our sales priorities, we've got our operations priorities, we've got our diversity, inclusion, and belonging priorities. And everything else supports those, right? So it's almost like a third focus area of a company. If you're selling something, creating something, and then the how, the resetting your the culture against the selling and the creating. So I think that thinking about it in that way, it helps you understand that um, the resource outlay for the work has got to be fairly significant. One, because you're not quite sure. No one is. It's not. This is not an indictment with any employer. Most employers are not really quite sure what they're up against. I, I've said before that DEI operates inside of environments designed to kill it, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. I, I now wholeheartedly believe that, even though that sounds like horrible to say. But again, because it's so counterculture, this idea of taking things that are different from whatever the standard is, and as a matter of fact, including it in everything, just default inclusion of that which is different doesn't happen. And certainly yeah. not at work. And then, of course, racial equity. So what if a CEO says DEI is going to be an important priority, you're also saying that I am working to disrupt everything that we know about how human beings work here as we have to get the work done. And um, everything that we know about human beings work, meaning the, the, like the social norm standard setter, right? So everything that we have come to understand about live life experience, uh, work experiences, human to human engagement could possibly be wrong. We want to know if that's the case. And if so, how wrong have we been? And then how do we fix that wrong? That all takes money. That's resources. So like for us, what we would do is with Harper Slade, we would come in step one and do what we call a racial equity assessment, organizational assessment designed to not just not really measure satisfaction, but designed to understand to what extent are the employee related experiences, how people come in, what happens while they're here and how they exit. To what extent is that demonstrably different based on your hue, Mm -hmm. the skin that you're in? or the other narrative that you're coming into the workplace with. And then from that data, we can help the employer then carve out what is your plan. And this has to be years and years and years of plan execution because it's years and years and years of calcification that you're trying to like chip away against. So, um, and that's why it can't just be one department, can't just be one person, can't just be, you know, a couple thousand dollar budget. It's not about a singular training. It's not even about a series of a series of training. It's about kind of the presumption of disruption, you know, managed disruption related specifically to the employee life cycle, revisiting everything around the norms of the experience of employees here resetting that against a broader standard that is more garden-like tilling for all, fertilizing for mm-hmm. all, amending for all, re- resetting that entire kind of structure so that your employee base doesn't just benefit, but also the products and the services that you deliver are now kind of refocused, revamped, recast, because you have a very different thinking and ideological construct from which this work is being effectuated. 
Right. And, and you, you mentioned something I think is really important. And then the assessment is to understand who your demography is, right? Your demographics within your own microcosm of your organization and to understand how all different groups experience work, interpret work, how, how, how they feel about work and how um, they feel about working in the culture and experience that, that the leaders have ultimately the impact on creating. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you mentioned that like the group of Hispanics or the type of flower that that group would represent. Um, and we've talked about the importance of, you know, understanding who they are as people, understanding the journey of the African-American female. If, if that, if you have a group of African-American females in your um, organization that you understand, like, you know, what their lifestyle is like, what do they care about? How many kids do they have? Are they mothers? You know, what are the other, cons- what's their experience been? Um, what does the day in the life look like? What has <laughs> yeah. to happen before this, these individuals actually even arrive on your campus or in your workplace? What do they watch? Um, what do they read? Where do they go um, socially? Like to understand a little bit more about culture and experience and what creates them as human beings is so important as well in terms of the d- deepening your understanding and empathy. And we talked about understanding and connection to empathy. And I'd, I'd really like you to uh, share the connection between those things because once the understanding happens, the education is there the empathy forms, but also we don't stop there with our empathy. But I think if if you're a, a leader in an organization and you're actually looking at your demography, you have a responsibility to understand the journey of the people that have that are actually working for you. Certainly yeah. from an empathetic standpoint to understand them, but also it is like, how does that then shape how you're going to water, fertilize, provide the right environments to attract more of those talented individuals. And that really becomes the work of an ongoing DNIB program. Yeah. Most of us at work, at least in this country, we, we come to work is in our 30, 40, 50, 60 year old selves. And, and if you're birthed in this country, you probably don't have much by way of a real understanding of what has happened to black people specifically. I'll use, us yeah. as an example, and the plight of Black Americans in this country. You know a little bit about slavery. You know about Rosa Parks. You know about Martin Luther King. But in terms of structurally and institutionally, the required marginalization and stunting of Black people in intentional ways that has been def- the defining thread really for our life since we've been in this country. I mean, Black people have really only been free probably over the last 50 years. And even then it's tenuous because we still don't have freedoms to exercise freedoms um, fully. So when you come to work and then you hear people like me talk about DEI or talk about proportional fairness, you're hearing it probably without a context to receive it other than you want something for nothing, or this is a set aside or you're looking for a handout. You need to honor your choices. You make you need to make better choices. Because I don't have a framework on our understanding that the choices, the choices that have been available to me 
as a part of the dominant and prevailing culture have never been a part of your reality as a matter of structure, right? They just historically have not been available to the black or brown or citizen. I just recently did a, a, a talk with a wonderful friend of mine. Her name is Alesha. And she was, she and I were talking about this idea of energy outlay and when yeah. and where we expend energy. And if you think about just assume that the great equalizer is the energy outlay that each of us gets every single morning. So we wake up and we all have, I don't know, 55 orbs of energy. I don't, I'm just, I don't even know if they're called orbs or if we, I don't know uh, where I got that <laughs> from, but 55 orbs of energy in our hand. And the universal reality is before we get to work is that some of us might expend a little bit of that trying to get our kids out the door to school. Some of us might spend, you know, a little time with traffic, frustrated with that. Some of us may have a hiccup at the dry cleaners. By the time we get to work, we're at like 30 orbs, right? So the workplace tends to assume productivity, like how we measure how you're producing, how you're doing, how you're showing up, what kinds of things, what your attitude is. Uh, whether you're viewed as a team player, how contributive you are, we're assuming that based on everybody's coming to work with 50 orbs. All right, we don't say that, we don't call it that, but we just kind of assume that everybody's starting from the same place. You need to be contributing in the same way as Sue, is the same way as Larry, is the same way as Tim. We all need to be thinking about it. And if there's not that, then we we have a universal sweep against, well, what how do we fix what's wrong with you or what do you what do you need to do to fix yourself? Yeah. We don't have a view or understanding or any real anchoring around the the cumulative effect of the other orbs when you are inside of narratives, like I've been talking about, inside of these deficit-assigned narratives. So for me, one example that I used, okay, so my son is 26 now. When he was in college, uh, of course, was working for various companies, and he would drive from Louisville to Georgia. And um, as a part of that, he would get stopped by police with fair regularity. That's a part of it. That's an orb outlay, right? So just the stopping, yeah. right? Just knowing that my son's in the car. Oh, now he's, you know, and the inevitability, not the infrequent possibility, but the inevitability, he will be stopped somewhere along the way. You got a broken taillight. You were speeding. You know, things that just never, not usually true about what his speeding record is or what his driving record is. <laughs> So it got so bad that I, I created for him, um, I don't know if I have any right here, but it was called a police pouch. And it is a, he wears it around his neck, wore it around his neck. It's like a lanyard, a conference lanyard. So inside mm -hmm. of it, I put his driver's license, registration, and um, the other thing that you have to have, insurance. But I also put a photo of him, a family photo of, of he and our family, and I put a little narrative card, no bigger than like a, a small index card. And it said, my name is Justin Jackson. I am an honor student driving from Kentucky to, to Georgia, where I am in college. My parents are both gainfully employed. I have never been in trouble with the law. So I do that because for two reasons. The picture is in there because I want, I want if he is encountering a police officer that is ill-intended, not saying that all police officers are ill-intended, but if he is, then I want the police officer to immediately see this kid as a part of a unit. So if he's coming to the car, walking up to my son's car with a narrative of this is a black boy, probably up to no good. There's probably drugs in the car, criminal activity, something. If that's the narrative that he's approaching the car with, I want the picture to disrupt that in some way. Yeah. And the narrative card is in there. 
for further disruption. But quite frankly, I, I, if my son is killed at a police stop, I want the police officer to know and to see who is grieving this kid. What, what's the consequences right. of who's left because his life has ended? <clears throat> and it is not uncommon for black mothers to do and feel the way that I do. We never talk about that at work because it's not safe to do so, right? right. It's not safe. But those energy outlays. So I'm, I'm saying all that to say, I can remember so many times coming to work and not being my best at all, only because my son was driving. And I, would, I couldn't get it together until he actually called and said, I'm in Georgia, I've, I've made it here safely. So it and is the idea for Black mothers that leaving the house, leaving your home is its own opportunity for your son's life to end just because of how he looks is something that is so hard to describe and yeah. there's no space to describe it, but the energy outlay that comes from that. And then in addition to the micro inequities at work, and then in addition to what happened at Kroger or what happened in the parking lot or who called my daughter such and such at school and the fact that she's not, you know, her teachers are assuming that she's lying about something because and the other students are. So there's just, just the wielding around trying to manage your own narrative assignment and then manage the narrative assignment of your children and your spouse is incredibly taxing and emotionally uh, disturbing. And yet there's no space to talk about that in professional settings. Yeah. Nikki, thanks for sharing that because I think that that most of us are not aware. I mean, I I can certainly appreciate that as a mother and, and, and worrying about, your sons. Um, I know that Black women have a whole other level of concern based on what has been going on in our in our culture over the last several years and for decades, frankly. Um, right. But that energy orb thing is a really interesting concept because I think if leaders look at their employees as having, we all have the same amount of energy orbs. Like some of them is like maybe there's a sick mother at home and they're not able to concentrate. So what would help you in that particular instance um, to either like get regenerative orbs at work in terms of either there be safe to be there or if the garden then is is fertile and supportive that your energy is somewhat you pull new energy out of that from a cultural standpoint like what would help you be resourced in that particular instance as it relates to this DNI conversation. And I, I think it's really great that you um, pointed it out in the way that energy, because we all have finite amounts of energy and they pull on us. But if you're a person of color, you have to navigate energy drains that a lot of people that are white presenting don't have to deal with. Like you said, it was microaggressions, yeah. getting your coffee or, you know, somebody looking at you poorly or cutting you off or whatever. How are you regenerating that and how what's the employer's role in helping to regenerate that as well yeah i just think it's a matter of you know empathy is important but empathy is is not the end it right. is the means to the end so the end really is assuring a sense of connection and a sense of i guess understanding um yeah. even even if not compensated so it's not it's not so much that i i would expect my employer to lessen expectations of me or to lessen productivity woes about me, but give them proper context. So one, one example is um, 
one of the things that I think the, the Fed did beautifully when I was working for the Fed when in the midst of 2020, when all of that was unfolding, our leadership C-suite immediately recognized that black employees are going to be struggling for a minute. Like they're just, this is hard on everybody, but black employees are reliving in their lives and their family lives so much of the despair and fear and anger. And they're just, we just aren't, we're not coming to work in any way close to what we were before the cumulative reminder of 2020 of our contextual mattering. And so recognize that we had forms to talk about it, set met with managers to kind of reset expectations around how we show up with the right amount of empathy and support. I mean, we still have to get work done, but this, we also have to be careful in the midst of this, that as we are appreciating the fact that while everybody's energy outlay is very different and how energy is depleted from us before we get to work is very different. There was some universal universe, universal outlays of energy that are specific to cultures that we as a dominant culture will never understand. And they're not like episodic. They're fairly continual. And it's our responsibility to understand that and understand how to help navigate through that and not contribute to any more of it. Right. I think that's, I think that's the major thing as well is to have that awareness that, that there is different energy outlays and to not contribute to more of it. And how can the cultures be regenerative in ways that support people and support human beings thriving and contributing and bringing their best selves to work and that it is a safe environment psychologically as well as physically, that it can be a source of regeneration and safety for people. So Nikki, I can continue to talk to you all day long and there's so much that you have to share and I just so appreciate you being here. But before we go, I want to just mention a couple things about Harper Slade and what you have coming down the pike. And so first and foremost is that the garden program, which we talked about today, is launching in Q2. And that's your online course at Harper Slade. And then also you have Harper Slade at 12, a webcast, which is launching this month. And you are um, opening and doing a launch event in Atlanta in June and a mixer for Black professionals in Louisville in July. And I just wanted to say if there's anything else you wanted to add, you are certainly very, very busy. And we look forward to hearing more about what Harper Slate does. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine. This has been tremendous. I really appreciate this. It's been wonderful. Yeah, it's been great for us. So if you are a CEO, a C-team member, a CHRO, and you've been listening to this episode, we invite you to take action. That racial equity is ours to remedy. What will you do personally? What what have you gotten out of this conversation that you are actually now going to put into action? Are you going to go back to your leadership team and have a general conversation about how important DEIB is to your strategic initiative and to your strategic action plans? Are you going to go to your team members to help the entire organization understand your demography a little bit more? Are you going to talk about your role in shaping a new future for all of us that includes racial equity so that all of us can prosper economically? What is your commitment to learn? Um, we invite you at Intune to email us at ignite at intunecollective.com for any questions that you have about this episode or anything more that you want to learn about DE and I and B, diversity, equity, inclusion, 
and belonging. Nikki, it's been so fabulous being here today with you. We wish you nothing but the best and our continued partnership to thrive in our collective vision of seeing and making the world a better place, um, especially in the workplace. So thank you again. Thanks, Christine. If listening to The Business of Being Human has intrigued you, inspired you, encouraged you, we would appreciate it if you rated and left us a review on Apple Podcasts. This will help others find the show. The Business of Being Human is a production of Intune Collective. It is produced and edited by Elizabeth Joy Windham. Executive producers are Christine Hildebrand and Wendy Horn Brower. Our theme music is by Adrian Walther. It is called Empowered. Cover and episode art is by Lisa Hardy. You can find all of our episodes and learn more about the services of Intune Collective at intunecollective.com.